This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Thanks for joining us once again, everyone. You're listening to Evidence Faith, voice of Machu This is the show where we help you learn how to live a happy life. We give you the ideas, the philosophy, the religion that leads to a filled, abundant life. Well, I'm Keith Kendricks. Jennifer Quinn. And Jessica Richardson. And we are going to be talking with a fellow graduate student of mine, a fellow student. So... Uh, that's going to be exciting, but we've got a couple of things to get to, and I do want to remind people, please check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com, also our Facebook page, and if you like podcasts, you can go to iTunes and find all our past shows on podcasts. Also check out the ratiochristi.org website. That's got a lot of good information about apologetics in universities and colleges around the United States. And I guess let me introduce you girls a little bit further because just your name is probably not enough for some people who might be just joining us. So, Jen Quinn, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, well, I'm a recent graduate of uh, the Richard Stockton College of New Jersey. My major was political science. I helped start Ratio Christi, a student apologetics alliance on the Stockton campus before I graduated. I still help out with that. And I'm in the process of getting my apologetics certificate from Biola University. And Jessica Richardson. I'm currently a Richard Stockton student. I'm graduating in December with a degree in criminal justice. And I'm the vice president of our chapter here at Stockton College. And I just finished completing my certificate in apologetics through Biola University. All right. So we're so excited. And Rasha Christie has a lot to do with uh, all of us being together today. Sure does. Well, I've got a great, great quote I found. I've been reading, I think you guys know I've been reading Thomas More's Utopia, and found another great quote in here, and this goes to the issue of how Christianity laid the foundation for science. So here's, this is from 1516, and they didn't even use the term science in those days, so, but I think you'll get, well, philosophy is what they called it, but here's the quote. For whiles they, by the help of this philosophy, search out the secret mysteries of nature, they think that they not only receive thereby a wonderful great pleasure, but also obtain great thanks and favor of the author and maker thereof, whom they think, according to the fashion of other artificers, to have set forth the marvelous and gorgeous frame of the world for man to behold, whom only he hath made of wit and capacity to consider and understand the excellency of so great a work. And therefore, say they, doth he bear more goodwill and love to the curious and diligent beholder and viewer of his work and marveler at the same than he doth to him which like a very beast without wit and reason or as one without sense or moving hath no regard to so great and so wonderful a spectacle. So you can see how this Christian idea 
about God being the creator and the artificer and gave us reason to understand things had such an impact on people that it started the modern scientific movement. So let's see. Let's uh, only news item is that I had a chance to go and debate and present to a room full of atheists. So that was exciting. Yesterday, there's a website called Meetup. I guess you do you ladies know about that? I've never heard no, of it. <laughs> okay, so Meetup is where you can go online and just put kind of your interests and where you're located and then you look at the different groups that have been formed to see so it might be, you know, jazz music lovers or southern New Jersey and then they'll get together on a Saturday, you know, or that kind of thing or a wine drinkers club or something. And so this there's a lot of atheist meetups because of course, you know, they don't have a church for their religion. <laughs> so this one is was an atheist and theist debate meetup. And they've met a couple times. I've tried to get there, but it's a long way away. So I didn't get there. And then the founder, I guess, Googled my name. And so he contacted me and invited me to come and speak for them. And he made it three hours long so that it was worth it for me to drive an hour and a half up there. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. They were very polite, um, you know, all kinds of uh, interesting attitudes. There was about 10 atheists for two theists wow. uh, beside myself. And, uh, you know, the kind of a range of a lot of agnostic, you know, one or two very angry atheists, um, but they controlled themselves pretty well. And the group dynamics were good. And when people, they had an interesting rule when people started going at it with each other, they would start a timer and you only had two minutes to get your point across. And the other person had two minutes and that was it. You had to actually change uh, topics or change persons speaking. So it was very well done. Uh, it went well. I talked about the Kalam cosmological argument. I had only 10 minutes to present, so I did two arguments for the existence of God, Kalam, and the moral argument, and that took 10 minutes. I mean, you know, I could have gone for 20, 30 minutes if I'd had the opportunity. But. Were you able to get more of the points in and more detail as the discussion went on? Yeah, absolutely. Because okay. as they challenged then, they'd say, oh, well, I don't believe premise number two. So then I could uh, go give, into more depth. Yeah, exactly. So, so, and I think I was able to take a lot of the challenges pretty well. I think things went pretty well. Was there an audience or was it just you guys? Yeah, it was just, uh, so I guess about 12 or 13 of us all together. Mm-hmm. So uh, then I did a little thing on intelligent design. And instead of doing the, you know, molecular machines and the flagellar motor approach, because I figured a lot of them, and I was right, one was a PhD neuroscientist. So I figured a lot of them will already be familiar with some of that. So instead, I took the approach of how does a person reason to the idea that something was designed? What is the process that you go through in your mind to see, ah, this must be designed? So when you're driving along a road and you turn around, you know, turn around a corner and you see a cliff face and you see what look like the faces of presidents, how do you know that that just wasn't weathered by rain and wind? You know, your mind actually goes through a process and you immediately it's obvious to you that that is designed. So I went through that and uh, so I thought that was pretty good. And then we had originally decided to do something on the reliability of scripture because we thought that the group was going to be more balanced, that there would be about 50% theists there. And so I wanted to encourage them and give them information to challenge what they might have been facing against with the other uh, atheists. But they were kind of, you know, why are you telling us this? We don't believe that anyway. So The, two, the, the atheists, oh, okay. yeah. But still we got into it uh, a little bit, and uh, so it turned out to be a good experience overall. Well... Having done with the news and our quote for the day, let us bring on our guest. As I said, our, my, the guest today was 
one of the uh, students that was at graduate studies with me in Biola. Her name is Mary Jo Sharp. She's the director of Confident Christianity. She holds an MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University and is the director of Offline Apologetics and is an assistant professor at Houston Baptist University. Mary Jo is an author, a debater, and a speaker, and a wonderful person. Mary Jo, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Hi, thank you very much for that uh, gracious introduction. Well, we had a lot of fun studying together, didn't we? Wasn't that a great program? Yeah, it was. We really did have a lot of fun. And I'm so jealous of you now because you're going to be spending a lot of time with John Mark Reynolds, who was one of our professors. Yes, Uh, he was our cultural apologetics professor. Yes. So let's get into things. Start telling us about this new program that you have at Houston Baptist University. I have a couple of aspiring apologists here in the room with me, and they are just dying. Uh, I, I actually recommended this a few months back to them as at this program for them. So they're all excited to talk to you. So let me step out of the way and jump. And, well, Mary Jo, first of all, tell, tell our listeners about HBU and what the program is and what you're trying to do there. Ah, very good. Thank you. It's a, um, it's a new Master of Arts in Apologetics, it, so it's a graduate degree program, and we will have eventually, um, well, we will have, starting in the spring, the resident program, so the on-the-ground uh, program there at HBU, so if you want to come to Houston and study with us, it's starting up in the spring, and then uh, we will, we're working on getting the online apologetics part, and that's what I'm the director of, is the online apologetics We're working on getting that up and running so you can take our program from no matter where you are in the world. It's a uh, cultural apologetics program, which one of the, just we focus more on the tradition of Schaefer and C.S. Lewis. It's an interdisciplinary apologetics program where we're trying to encourage our students not only to learn the arguments, but then to help them engage in the culture in whatever medium that they choose, whether that be music or art or writing, or public speaking. So we we do actually have courses that will aid them with those. Like, uh, specifically for me, I'll be teaching apologetics communication course there, and uh, students will develop some skills in writing and speaking, not just in person, but also in online contexts, like I've been doing with Confident Christianity, which started out as a blog. So helping them to be... um, communicating apologetics arguments not only in person but also online as well. Plus, we have one particularly interesting uh, aspect to our program, which is from having Dr. Holly Ordway on board with us, another Biola grad. She um, has a specific field that is it's very interesting. It's called imaginative apologetics. And what she's going to be doing is analyzing in depth how Christians have used artistic forms to communicate the Christian truth. And so she'll be, we'll be looking at C.S. Lewis and how he wrote uh, great stories in order to communicate Christian arguments for the truth, and uh, also looking at film and the visual arts, and then literature and apologetics, and hopefully helping some of our students to develop their writing in that area and to um, bring back a focus in um, art as well as our philosophical apologetics, you know, the arguments from science and um, philosophy, but also helping them to... Um, make a big impact in culture in the areas that have been very impacting in our culture as well uh, through art. Uh, so we have a, it's sort of interdisciplinary. So if you're area of science or uh, if you're a writer or if you're a singer, we're hoping to help you in all those areas to become a great apologist for the Lord. 
Uh, and one last great aspect is that we have a f- spiritual formation component that will go all the way through the apologetics degree. So you'll have uh, people such as myself mentoring you along the way in your spiritual formation. But it's, we have some great teachers, Keith. We've got John Mark Reynolds on board, Mike Lacona. Uh, Nancy Piercy is on board with us as our scholar-in-residence, and we'll be teaching some courses. And Nancy Piercy, many people know her as being a, a partner with the great, uh, the late great as well, Chuck Colson. And uh, yep. we're so excited to have her on board with us. Yeah, she's a big so, favorite of ours, too. Yeah. So we Hi, have Mary Jo. Really this is program. Jennifer speaking. Um, oh, I'm currently... Yeah studying for my certificate from Biola, and I'm praying and looking into master's programs in apologetics. And one of my hesitations about it was that I wasn't sure what careers were available in the field of apologetics. Um, But then when I heard about you, seeing how you're able to apply it and and work at a college, um, I just had some questions about HBU's program. Um, So you said that they do have an online version. Will that be up by this spring? Because I'm looking to applying for this spring? Ah, I wish I could tell you yes. It's uh, still in the works. Uh, so it will not be up until fall of 2013 at the earliest, and spring 2014 is our latest starting date. But our it's our uh, residence program that's going to be up and running in the spring, this spring. Okay. And what are the differences between HBU's approach and Biola's? Um, I really like both schools, but it seems like, does HBO take more of a culture approach than Biola? Yeah, I would say so. Um, And in the sense that you can still, uh, well, let's put it this way, uh, Biola is a great program, and they they would focus on more of a philosophical apologetics approach. Um, And one of the things I can tell you from my experience is I got a lot of the arguments um, that I needed for apologetics. And what we do at HBU that's a little bit different is we have courses that take that um, like another step, a next step in helping you apply it into whatever field it is that you're going to be um, using it in. So if you want to just be a straight-up apologist, we'll help you figure out, you know, are you going to blog? Are you going to, how are you going to use that effectively? Are you going to be a public speaker, a debater? Um, but if you, maybe you're a musician who's a Christian and you want to use this um, degree to help you communicate great Christian truths through your music. So that's something that we want to help develop as well. So it's a little bit different in that way in that we sort of take maybe what we would call the next step um, in applying it back into being effective in transforming culture and guiding our students towards that. Mary Jo, it seems like this would be a great place for writers also, those who have English degrees and things like that who want to write fiction. This would be the place to go. Yes, it definitely would, especially with um, Nancy Piercy and Holly Ordway. Holly has a uh, Ph.D. in literature, so that's if you're a person who wants to communicate great truths through any kind of writing at all, uh, she would be a fabulous person to work with. Uh, now, I was intrigued by something you said. You were talking about teaching people how to do apologetics online. So I'm assuming you're thinking of like Facebook discussions and uh, blog post discussions. Is that what you mean? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> I find that, uh, you know, interesting. We just recently um, got our Facebook page up and running for Evidence for Faith. And of course, it seems like you get sometimes organized attacks by uh, atheists. <laughs> so we've had to block out the abusive stuff. But then you get some good 
you know, challenging questions and things. And, and uh, in responding, it poses a couple of interesting questions is that is how forcefully do you respond? You know, is, is this the kind of thing that you're going to be teaching about? I mean, oh, yeah. it seems like, you know, there's a lot of ways to make mistakes. Let me put it that way. You know, if you're too harsh with a person, if you think that they're being uh, belligerent, but then if you're belligerent back to them, you know, you just blew your witness. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you're you're right on. Uh, that's exactly what I'm going to be looking at teaching students and teaching them. I shouldn't say looking at, but yeah, I mean, I've seen it over and over. When we did, um, we had an old Facebook debate group called Two Chicks Apologetics, and it was <laughs> at times it would get so hostile from um, either either the Christian or the atheist side that we would have to warn them, you know, this is our rules. We, we don't use bad language. We don't commit ad hominem. If you just are attacking the person and not the argument, then we're going to boot you. Uh, the good thing was most people, after a warning, would settle down, uh, settle down on the not-so-negatively-charged wording. They'd, they'd get rid of that after we warned them. But those are the kind of things that we want to teach is that you need to have, um, you know, your own set of rules that you put in place before you engage that you will not compromise on and that you will let people know, here's how we engage if you want to talk with me. And I have used that as a guideline for, we've been up since um, 2006, you know, I've, I've done that on my blog, on Facebook, and we've only had to boot, um, I think, one Christian and then a couple, maybe two atheists, but five people overall uh, out of like 3,000 people over the years because we had those rules in place. Well, that's good. So you did have to boot a Christian. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah. We're not for attacking in the person instead of their arguments. That's exactly I think what that, you were that's saying. something we have to constantly remind ourselves of in apologetics because me too, when I start like debating with someone, I have to remind myself like you can win the argument, they say, but lose the soul. So you want to make sure that you're loving the person and you're doing it out of sincerity, that you want them to know the Lord, not just because you want to show off your knowledge that you could beat them in an argument. So I think as Christians, we have to constantly remind ourselves of that. Yeah, that, that is great. And also reminding yourself that when you engage with people online, um, you may have specialized knowledge in a field that makes you look really fancy, right? Because <laughs> you can all the, use all the big words, but if you care about a person's soul and they're not understanding you, the point is to get them to understand the, you know, what you're talking about so that you can communicate with them so that they can engage in the argument and consider it. And that was another thing I found, that Christians who had gone to seminary, it was great to use those words. I agree with you. Use all the fancy words when somebody knows what you're talking about. But being able to break those down for the average atheist or the average person that doesn't have a Christian background was vital to engaging online, just like it would be one-on-one. Right, right. Yeah, I found I had to make myself a, a new rule, which was not to talk about the person. Because I would say <laughs> things like, you're making a mistake, here's where you're wrong. And it was all you, you, you. And then even though I was being fairly polite, uh, people would take offense at that. Um, yes. So now I just say things like, it is a mistake to think in such a way because here's what's wrong with this idea. And not yeah. even, if I say you, then I probably am going down the wrong road. So now I just talk in kind of third persons with people. I think that's a lot better. So they all oh, take yeah. it like you're attacking them. You're just exactly. attacking their argument. Yeah. Right. Right. Isn't, that, right. isn't that funny, just using that word you? I had to take that out of my online vocabulary as well and put it back into, like you were saying, third person or put it into um, – language of, I'm not sure I'm understanding this part right here, 
And uh, I had to be very careful. I actually had a rule of my own, which is that I would write something out um, in response to an argument, and then I would wait on it, and I would reread it. Uh, Sometimes if I was real angry, I would wait uh, half an hour or more and come back to it and look at it. Other times uh, I would just send it to my husband or somebody else to read and say, how is this coming across to you? Then I would post it. And that does take some time, especially with as fast as the Internet, you know, is. But uh, it was so worth it. It was so worth it to not have a um, a bad, you know, to be careful to have an excellence of process in delivering the argument as well. Absolutely. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. Jennifer Quinn. And Jessica Richardson. And we are speaking with author and speaker and professor Mary Jo Sharp from Confident Christianity. And Mary Jo, you have written a book that's going to be coming out in November. I'd love to get into this topic with you, especially with our two guests today. Your book is, let me see if I have this right, Defending the Faith, Apologetics in Women's Ministry. And that's coming out November 1st, right? So that's great. Uh, uh, I'm glad to hear you got a book out now. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, definitely. It's... um it's the book that I never thought I would write. <laughs> it is a. Uh, it's interesting as I began to speak in apologetics, I would just give um, arguments for God's existence. I would just give evidence for the resurrection, and I was doing this a lot with women's ministries. And I found that I was kind of hitting and missing these women's audiences um, because they hadn't. I hadn't figured out that they hadn't been exposed as women's ministries to apologetics. Now, individual women had been exposed to apologetics, and they knew what it was, but generally, when I would talk to a a ministry group, they hadn't been exposed to that yet. Uh, So I realized that this was sort of a new field in in women's ministry, and uh, I began to help women's ministries um, establish the need for why apologetics was so important. And when when I began to talk on the need for apologetics in women's ministry, I noticed a great response especially here in Texas, uh, where I was going out and speaking to different groups, a lot of different women's groups. And so I wrote this book to help these women's ministries figure out, you know, how do I communicate to my ministry that there's a need for this material, for the defense of the faith? And that's basically the book. The first three chapters sort of establish the need for why we need to be able to defend the faith. And then it goes into some practical ideas for how you can engage right away uh, with people one-on-one with your family, with the community, and then practical implementation of uh, apologetic studies into women's ministries. That's what the book basically is. I was was listening to one of your podcasts earlier today from, I don't know, quite a while back about the need for women to be involved in apologetics and how to get that involved at your church and things like that. And you had discussed something that I thought was really interesting, that a lot of women don't feel confident enough to... um, to say that they have doubts because they feel like as women that have maybe been going to church, that you know, they shouldn't have doubts or they feel like if they express a doubt in front of one of the men in the church, they'll be looked down upon. Do you think that when it comes to apologetics, it's better off for the women to do it in their Bible study so there can be a little bit more of an open dialogue than, you know, being intimidated by doing it in a open forum at the church? Yeah, I think that's, uh, 
that was one of the things that surprised me. I, I think that I was shocked um, that women were intimidated. They were telling me that this, um, they didn't want to feel stupid. Is what the, the wording that would be like, <laughs> I don't want to feel stupid saying, the, asking this basic question in front of the whole church or in front of all the guys or my husband or those sorts of things. That, that actually shocked me. I'd never thought of that. And um, so... I th- what I what I've been talking about is that a women's ministry seems to be more of a safe place where like women feel safe to learn, um, safe to ask those kind of questions, safe to say, "Hey, I I don't know this stuff, um, and I really need help." Um, now I'm just be I'm generalizing, but I, it seems like that if you can create a safe environment inside of your women's ministry for women to learn, that that would be a place where apologetics would flourish and where they wouldn't feel intimidated by having the guys around. Now that's not always the case, but um, I'm finding it was a surprise to find that that could be the case some of the time, and so that women's ministries are actually a really good place to start. I think that, you know, you're really on to something with that because at Ratio Christie meetings, obviously we have like guys and girls there. And this past week we started a question box and all the questions about apologetics in the question box were actually from girls. None of the guys had asked anything in there. They tend to be um, more comfortable talking about it at our question meetings, whereas the women kind of just sit back and don't say anything because, you know, maybe they're there with their boyfriend and they don't want to feel stupid or whatever. So they're far more comfortable asking it to, you know, Jenner or or myself um, aside or to put it in a question box, which I think, yeah. I mean, it's kind of sad that they don't feel confident enough, you know, because men have doubts too and women need to understand that we're all kind of on the same page when it comes to that. Yeah, I've heard that before anyway. Actually, it rings a bell in one of my classes, like a psychology study where women really are, they think before they ask questions, whereas men, like, they just are ready to raise their hand, and women, like, are afraid first of sounding stupid and not wanting to. So I think, yeah, in a group where it's just women, they'll feel so much more comfortable to to raise their doubts and their questions, and, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, it's a... Um important for us to be telling women uh, that, you know, you don't have to have all the answers, and we don't expect you to have a God's view of the world. Like, you're never going to have all the answers. So it's okay that you ask these questions. And one, one of the stories I tell them is from my, my seventh grade uh, algebra class in that I had actually um, not had pre-algebra. <laughs> so I was thrown into algebra out of elementary school. And as I got in that class, there were a lot of things I didn't understand, like why are we using X and Y? What are variables, you know? <laughs> I didn't know what these things were, and I, I couldn't figure it out. So every day I would ask these questions just because I didn't know, and I didn't want to get left behind. I wanted to know these, <laughs> these great truths of algebra. So uh, my, my teacher would actually say every day, is there a stupid question? And then he'd pause and say, Mary Jo? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm never going to stop asking the stupid questions because I want to know. I want to know. And I, I hope that we can help communicate that to women. I mean, this is the most important subject ever. So if, if you feel like you're behind, it's okay. Ask those questions. Get your answers because you might have some doubt. And if you have doubt, those, those doubts have to be dealt with. You can't just let them linger. So uh, I just really want to stress to the women out there who might be listening to our show as well that, um, that ask those questions. Ask the tough questions. Even if you think maybe that somebody's going to look down upon you, that's, you know, that's their fault for looking down upon you rather than your fault for being inquisitive and having a childlike faith in God. Mary Jo, let me ask you a little uh, church political uh, question, because I'm actually seeing this as a a tremendous boon to women in the church, because right now, you know, I go to a very conservative church, 
and there would never dream of having a woman be even probably an assistant pastor, certainly not a pastor, but probably not even teach a Bible study where there were men in attendance. And I'd hate to see what you're talking about, a movement of apologetics amongst women, be stuck in some kind of backwater, you know, just for women only. Uh, It seems to me, now just thinking about it, I'm putting my male chauvinist hat on, and I'm thinking, would would I be uncomfortable if a woman was doing a Bible study for me? And I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I would, but would I be uncomfortable if a woman was teaching me about apologetics? And I'm thinking, no, not in the least. I wouldn't see any kind of conflict, no matter if I put my fundamentalist hat on or what. You know, I see this as a tremendous opening for women to get involved in the church where they're not going to be taken aside and said, oh, um, pardon me, ma'am, but this isn't for you. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I, um, for one, you know, that's, you, a church should be articulating wh- what their position is so that the women in the church know exactly um, what's expected and can make a decision based on, you know, where they're at with their church. That's important for a church, t- for me, to articulate your position on that. Therefore, your members know what um, they can and can't do there at that particular church. Uh, but secondly, I, uh, on the issue of um, apologetics in general, the church should be a place where they're encouraging thinking across the board and encouraging good re- the use of good reason. And it, what I've found is that when you find a church that is generally committed to training the body of Christ in good reasoning as part of its uh, testimony to truth, that the women will automatically get involved with that because it's being stressed at the church. It doesn't answer your question exactly, but it's sort of an aside from that in that um, women will get involved no matter what the church, um, what their commitment is uh, to, uh, you know, women being pastors or women not being pastors. They'll get involved with the reasoning of the faith, which is a a different thing, um, if the church itself has a commitment to that. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think as women start do start standing up in the church and um, showing an interest in apologetics, it'll help get others, too, because I know in our church, I go to Keith's church as well, and to me, I spoke at the youth group recently on apologetics, and it's just such a concern and a red flag that they— they just seem like they're so disinterested, and it's just really alarming. And I want them to share, to try to share with them this passion and show them the need for apologetics. That once they're out of the church and once they're out into the real world, they're going to be bombarded with all these questions. And I don't think they see the seriousness of it yet. So I think even just um, stepping up in any areas with the youth group, like they, they're the group also who really needs it right now in the church to know how to defend their faith when they get out there. In the world. Yeah. And that that goes along with what I'm hearing at conferences. When I speak in apologetics, um, if, if I, you know, I speak at various youth and uh, just general apologetics conferences, uh, but I've done a lot of work in women's ministry conferences, and um, the one, the questions that come up frequently at these women's ministry events is they, they're concerned for their family, they're concerned for their son, who they'll, <laughs> it's a, here's the stereotyped question, my son is so smart, that's how it starts out, my son is so <laughs> smart, <laughs> and he knows his Bible, And then they'll say, but now he has all these questions that I can't answer. And wow, I mean, we are right, usually they are right in the field of apologetics, 
And these women are very concerned for their family members. If we can help them have the answers to those questions, you know, even before they begin, they can start training their kids in these areas um, when they're very young. They can have great conversations with their teenagers as the teenagers start to get more of that rationality going, you know, as they start to think and become more independent. The parents who have this basis in apologetics can start having these great conversations with their kids. And um, that's one of the things that, like I said, you hear it a lot at women's conferences is that they're concerned for family members. A lot of times it's their children, um, but many times it's a spouse uh, who has left the faith. And, you know, they're dealing, uh, it's also that they're dealing with an emotional doubt because they'll get hurt in the church. But have, and then they'll use intellectual arguments, you know, uh, in place of saying, hey, this person really made me upset. But uh, being able just to engage those intellectual arguments and answer those doubts is so important for women as uh, wives and spouses, but also in their workplace. Maybe they're not married or don't have kids. Just in their workplace where they could hear snarky comments or if they're in public school teaching, knowing uh, a foundation for what they believe and why they believe it's going to be important because they're going to be around a lot of different kind of kids. Anyway, many, many applicable fields there. <laughs> I, I was um, listening again earlier to one of your podcasts where you were talking about how when people have doubts, it affects their um, their spiritual walk. And if they have apologetics and they better understand why they believe what they believe, those doubts aren't there so much and they're better able to live out the Bible, which I think is so important, especially with the youth groups. As Jenna told me earlier this week when she sat down with her youth group, there was just um, very little evidence, I guess, of their Christianity or like living like Christ because they had doubts and they weren't really interested in apologetics. So um, my question is, if as women, we feel a need for there to be apologetics in a church, but the men don't feel a need for it, or they're not interested in it, how do we approach our pastors and say that, you know, we would like to get something started when the other men in our church aren't willing to step up and do something similar? Ah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I would, one of the things that we can do is, uh, like, I have a, um, a Bible study coming out that's geared towards women, so, uh, it, but it's apologetics-based. It's um, put out by the Beth Moore um, people, the people who did her videos, so it's a similar format. Um, that would be a great way, because you could say, hey, we want to do this Bible study called Why Do You Believe That? A faith conversation. We want to give women an opportunity to um, go through a, a study that's going to help them share their faith. I mean, man, that language right there, that's, that's good stuff. Uh, so that's one way you could say, you know, we really want to give women confidence in what they believe because uh, we see the need for it amongst our group of women that they've expressed that maybe they're not confident um, themselves and that maybe they have some doubts and we would like to, you know, do, you don't have to just do my study, there are other studies out there, but just establishing that maybe they have doubts, they need some confidence in what they believe and that we're hoping through this study to change their lives. Is that along the lines of what you were thinking there? Yeah, I think that the way you phrased it was a lot better than the way I tried to when I pitched it at my church. I got shot down pretty fast, but um, I guess I probably should have uh, got a little bit more guidance on how to ask the question before I asked it. <laughs> no, yeah, I think you did great. Pro All right, if you're just l- joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. Jennifer Quinn. And Jessica Richardson. And we are speaking with Professor Mary Jo Sharp from Houston Baptist University. And I love calling you professor, by the way. (laughs) So um, now, Mary Jo, let's talk about another uh, book that you contributed to. This is a great book called Come Let Us Reason, New Essays in Christian Apologetics. And I think uh, who's got chapters in there? Is, Is Bill Craig in there? Oh, yeah. 
His is hilarious. That's the 10 objections so bad I couldn't have made them up or objections. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. That is a, that's a great, yes, I saw his uh, essay on that. That's fabulous. Yeah, and, and uh, I think, uh, is John Mark in there too? Um, I'm not sure John Mark is. I know Moreland and uh, Habermas, oh. Craig Keener, um, Paul Copan, oh, Mike Lacona. Yeah. Uh, so it was great contributing to a book like that, right? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so now you contributed on a topic that you have spoken several times on about this whole idea of, you know, well, look, it's wonderful. Christianity is a great religion and all that stuff, but there's really no reason to believe it because it's just part of this ancient myth thing that's been going on since the dawn of time. There's been forever these dying and rising gods and... So there's no yeah. point in believing such silly nonsense as, as this. All we have to do is look back and see the original roots of Christianity and where the apostles got all their information from. Uh, it's kind of silly to believe this Christianity stuff. So you handle that pretty well. Let's, uh, let's spend a little bit of time talking about that topic. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, Bill Maher, actually, the the political uh, comedian, he actually likes to propagate this in the uh, oh, no. media. He yeah, he likes to say Horus, story of Horus and the story of Jesus are you know they're just mirror images of each other. And this is also the same argument that Richard Dawkins is basically making when he says most of us are atheists when it comes to all the other gods. I just go one god further. And yeah, it is it is sort of a, I would say, an irresponsible, like intellectually irresponsible argument, because the stories of Jesus, Horus, Osiris, Mithras, Dionysus, Krishna, they're actually very different if you go back to the sources and read them. Um, they, For example, you know, Zeitgeist, the movie, put out a, um, a, cons- it's a conspiracy theorist movie, and they put out these lists of similarities, parallels between Jesus' story and, and these other gods. And they'll say, everybody's got a virgin birth. You know, they'll go through and say, Osiris has a virgin birth, Horus has a virgin birth. And the problem with these sorts of things is that, um, these sorts of parallels, is that they're not the same, unless virgin birth is being used so broadly as to include things like Mithras jumping out of a rock, coming out of the underworld um, next to a riverbed, or uh, Horus being uh, Isis and Osiris, his parents, having intercourse in their mother's womb while they're still fetuses, apparently. You know, God fetuses, oh. I'm not sure what that is. But, and then uh, Horus being conceived in there and then ripping out of his mother's womb. Um, with Osiris, he's the, uh, he's the product of an adulterous affair between the gods, and we have gods that come out of myrrh trees. So virgin birth is being used in a way, it's, it's such a broad uh, use of that term that it can mean almost anything. <laughs> so that's not a very helpful type comparison. Uh, dying and rising, the deaths of these gods, the deaths of these gods are usually, they, they die by accident. Most of them um, are killed by an enemy who, like with Osiris, he gets lured into a sarcophagus, and then he, he gets soldered, the sarcophagus gets soldered shut, a coffin, and that gets thrown into the Nile, and he either suffocates or drowns. And then we have Horus, who either doesn't die, or he dies by the sting of a scorpion. Um, we have uh, Adonis, who gets attacked. It's just, and then you have Jesus, who's sacrificed, who gets sacrificed on a Roman cross, uh, for the sins of mankind. It, it's, I'm not sure how these compare, other than that there's a general sense that somebody dies. Uh, and that's not a helpful comparison. Right. 
I remember Zeitgeist them- even making the claim because I uh, people were telling me about this film and using these arguments. They were like, oh, you just need to see Zeitgeist and then you'll understand where we're coming from. So I went and watched it. And just like you said, like the claims they make, they say they also had 12 disciples. Where do they get that from, that these other gods also had disciples and followers? Yeah, that that's actually what I'm wondering, too, because when you <laughs> when you read the Egyptian Book of the Dead, you're not finding that in there. And I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> what I, well, let me put it this way. If this, if this argument has been a problem for you, let's say that you are listening to the show and this is one of the arguments that has led you away from Christianity or you're using it against Christianity, let me implore you to go back and read the source documents for these. Uh, you can Google them online. Many of them are on sacred text. Um, you can check out what universities use for their mythology courses, and then they'll have readers in mythology to read the myths from Homer, um, read the myths from the gods, and see if you can find these in there, or, if you're, or check yourself to see if you're using tertiary sources, like a third person down the road, you know, some scholar that's studied all these and then is putting this interpretation together. Um, not that that's a bad thing, but you do actually need to go back and see what those scholars were reading because I'm not finding resurrected gods all over the ancient stories. I'm finding Jesus, the understanding of his resurrection is so different. It's so different from other pagan gods that you find even in the scriptures in Acts 17, when Paul's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, um, the philosophers to whom he's talking, the pagan philosophers, don't understand what he's talking about with his resurrection. It is a fundamentally different resurrection in being that you're going to come back to a physical life. That was not something that was understood by the pagan gods who, or the pagans who wanted to be released from the physical life to go be with their god in the land of the dead. So very much, I want to just encourage the listener to go back and to check these uh, parallels out for themselves to see if those are actually in the original stories. One of the things I think we have to be careful about, too, is that some of these mystery religions that were popular in Rome uh, were popular after the formation of Christianity and uh, maybe felt like some of their parishioners or devotees were being converted over to Christianity and decided to say, hey, look, our God did that too. And so then start producing material that shows their God as also being like Jesus. Yeah. Do you find that's uh, that's the case? Yeah, that it, the chronology is out of order. Yeah, you do have to be careful that if you say the Christian faith, the, the earliest followers of Jesus were borrowing a story, that that story has to be in existence prior to Jesus. Um, and even then, you might end up with a post-talk um, argument if you're not careful, because it would have to actually be the cause of Jesus' story. But we have... Um, the problem with some of the mystery religions is that they're mystery religions. So you don't have a lot of material written down because uh, only the believers, the people who uh, were initiated into the full knowledge of those mysteries, have that knowledge. And with Mithraism, which was popular right after the earliest, right after Christianity, became very popular. Um, that one doesn't. Ha- we don't have a lot of written. Um, we have almost no written documents. We have inscriptions, and then we have some temples with pictures. And so, for the twelve disciples, that's sort of interpretation of the pictures that they saw in the uh, in the Mithraim um, temples. So that's what you have to be careful of is, well, do they even have the writings, um, and what do the writings say, and did they come after Christianity? 
And it seems like a lot of them did. From what I understand, um, a lot of their original, you know, quote unquote, original sources didn't come out until maybe the second century after Christianity had already been um, well established in the Roman Empire. So it's, yeah. it seems odd that, that they're using that as their claim that Christians copied off of them when, uh, you know, obviously the chronological order there is wrong. But um, yeah. I had a question about that being that you guys were talking a lot at HBU about how to deal with apologetics online. Do you think that these these mythology claims have become more of an issue online where people see the Zeitgeist movie on YouTube and they're spreading it all over Facebook and Twitter as if it's a real established fact. How do you suggest people dealing with those kind of claims in a social media aspect? Oh, wow. With, there's so much written online to refute that. <laughs> I know that uh, JP Holding over at Tectonics uh, has refuted the Christ Mysterian detail and um, I'm trying to think of who I have refuted it on my website or on my blog, uh, MaryJoSharp.com. But you could also, you know, direct people online, say, hey, I want to engage with the thoughts of this person. Could you go, this is what atheists would do to me, could you go read this article and engage with it, you know? Uh, that, there, there are refutations out there to use. Um, even Edwin Yamayuchi's um, is the New Testament filled with, I think it's called Easter Myths, I forgot the title of it, but Edwin Yamanucci's old article refuting this, this myth is still online, and that's a scholarly source right there. Bruce Metzger, um, you could use him, but direct them to something online, say, hey, go read this and let's engage with it. That would be a great way to do that, especially if you're a person that does Facebook debate or, you know, you go on blogs. That's a really great suggestion. Thank you. Yeah. Mary Jo, I had a question for you just because I know that I really love apologetics so much and my, my hang up on going for my master's in it was the lack of career opportunities and um, I was just wondering how you, um, how you would encourage someone to go about the process of becoming an apologetics professor and if those opportunities are out there. What I think is going to happen is that the opportunities are going to become more and more available as um, as we go along in time here. Uh, and I hope that our program encourages other programs to start up apologetics, um, like Biola did for HBU. But what I, here, let me say it this way. <laughs> um, I, I didn't go seeking necessarily for a job as a professor in apologetics, so I don't have like a formula, you know, here's what you do. But I can say that what we need are people who actually engage people who are engaging the culture. So if you want a job as a professor, what we need to see is a person who uses apologetics with atheists, with Mormons, with Muslims, and that you have that resource of experience. So you don't just have the argument, you don't just have the background, but that it has transformed you as a person to the kind of person that actually uses them daily, um, uses those arguments in every part of your life. That becomes a person who is attractive for a position in apologetics because you can mentor people uh, in doing the same thing. And then that's how we become very influential in our culture is we have a, a bunch of people who have been transformed and are using these arguments in their daily lives. Does that help at all? <laughs> yes, it actually does because... I saw how you had already started Confident Christianity and already were involved in various ministries before you received the opportunity as professor, correct? Yes, yeah. Okay, um, thank wonderful. you. It, it well, Mary Jo, we've yeah. got about three minutes left. I know that's not a lot of time, but I know that one of your interests also is in the issue of giving evidences that a lot of times we find that 
we answer a person's question and then they just have another one and you answer that question then they just have another one and you answer that question they jump back to the first question which you already answered and it seems like sometimes there's something deeper going on and that if we just get to know the person and become their friend a lot of times we find out that there is more uh, emotional things going on than just what appears at first to be an intellectual question you want to talk on that a little bit yeah, and it, actually you kind of described it there very well in that throughout my years of talking with people, I found that there's not as many straight-up intellectual objectors as I had anticipated, that there are good arguments out there that people make, but generally speaking, after I've answered those, or even I've found that sometimes when I'm engaging with an atheist or agnostic, they'll answer their own question, um, they still won't make the next step over to belief in God. So there's something else there. And many times that that is actually an emotional objection that they're harboring and maybe not saying. Um, You can kind of route this out by their language. A person who just has a straight-up intellectual argument doesn't need to be negatively charged in their wording. Um, Now, I'm stereotyping, right? I'm making a generalization. But uh, you don't need that. If you're just exploring a philosophical concept and you're open to any way it goes, you don't need to use negatively charged wording. So, and you don't need to put you commit a lot of ad hominem towards um, the other person. So sometimes I'm, I, I say, you know what? If I've got a person who's very angry, I want to know what's causing that anger back there. And obviously, if you don't know the person, you can't straight up ask them. So that's why it's so important to just be, you know, engaging with the arguments. And for as a Christian, for you not to be making negatively charged <laughs> responses to them, so that they can see that you are the one being reasonable, that you're being rational, you're being calm, and that you're just exploring these arguments, because they might be harboring an emotional doubt. And I actually had that happen with one of the atheists I argued with for a few years online. He was harboring an emotional doubt I didn't know about. We'd answered all his questions. He still didn't come to Christianity. And then finally, on his own time, he finally came over and uh, he accepted Christ as his Lord. But it He had to get past whatever that emotional doubt was, and the only thing I could do on that part was just to kind of wait it out with him and walk with him on that. Absolutely. Well, wonderful. Mary Jo, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. Let's tell people where they can get in contact with you, uh, websites or anything you'd like to give our listeners. Oh, yeah. Uh, Confidentchristianity.com is my website. MaryJoSharp.com is my blog. And certainly come and visit our Houston Baptist University, um, the hbu.edu slash MAA to see our apologetics program and get some more information about that. Wonderful. Thank you, Mary Jo. Thank you so much. I appreciate all of you being on the show with me. Um, well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was godly!